0: forget how many pies the desner brothers have their
1: talented little fingers in i honestly couldn't tell you who they are or where i know them from they
0: are two-fifths of the national uh, but bryce and aaron separately and together have worked on many projects from bonniver to Sufjan stevens bryce helped produce Planetarium.
1: Oh, um, oh, I know his name from that. Yeah. When you look up Planetarium on Spotify. Yeah, between them, I don't think they're twins,
0: but between them, they have an incredible amount of talent. And I think the National is just like one little part of their family empire by this point. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. And so they did the music for this. And then Feist was featured on two tracks, one of which was uh, one called I'm Not Fine. And that's totally a reasonable response. <laughs> it's very it's beautiful. Subtle score. But we enjoy subtlety on this podcast as much as we enjoy a good
1: blockbuster. That is true. Do you want to talk about the Video Game Awards real quick?
0: Oh, yeah. The Video Game Awards
1: happened last night in all its corporate glory. It was so arousing that Gabe stayed up the whole time to watch it. No. No, he fell asleep watching it. But it's not...
0: That's unrelated. (laughs) I would have watched it all if nothing than for my latent curiosity of another dying industry. But I was extremely tired for unrelated reasons. And that's actually not fair to say it's a dying industry. I think the video game industry is surging like ahead of the film industry, isn't it? I think video games... Yeah, makes and more I, money. I don't know if that was happening before COVID or after, but but yeah, the video game awards are kind of like the Golden Globes. <laughs> of the video game awards, a lot of drunk celebrities, uh, yeah, corporate shilling, that sort of thing. There's no Oscars equivalent. It's just the VGAs is kind of a joke. But we did get a couple interesting teases, including some in film and television. Mm-hmm. They showed their new first look at the Halo series, which will be on Paramount Plus next year.
1: It looks really good.
0: Honestly. It's it's got some money. It, it it again, it's one of those things where it has the kind of sterile look that sometimes medium to large budget projects can get. Yeah. For science fiction specifically, like Foundation. Or right. Not, or, uh, yeah, that was what it was. And it all boil down to the story for me, and I hope, unfortunately, 343, who develops the Halo games of the last 10 years, has said that it's not canon.
1: Which makes sense, honestly.
0: It's just so weird, though, because it's like Star Wars. You have, at this point, decades of storytelling, of good storytelling. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a fan. And there's like dozens of books just like star wars had and for someone to come in and say we're just gonna drop all that extended universe canon it's like come on man we're (laughs) and i just i feel like it's gonna be bad and i'm preparing myself now um but it's happening so we'll see there were other a few other teases a couple games i'm interested in we
1: should note that gabe is a huge halo fan much like he is a large league of legends arcane fan on top of being a fan of film and television but Halo came first. It's like... Yeah, it's a, it's an old love. It's my first love. Old flame.
0: Halo was there when I became a human Self-aware. being. Self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was three hours of kind of just corporate chilling. And all we got out of it was a couple cool trailers. There's a sequel for a game I'm extremely excited about called Hellblade. Senwa's Sacrifice was the first game. And this one's called Senwa's Saga or something. Hmm. Senwa. It's like a um, incredibly atmospheric story game set in the Viking like North mythology oh, scenario. That sounds cool. It's extremely cool. And it looks like it'll be a fun companion piece to, this just occurred to me, to uh, Robert Eggers' Northman coming out next year. Nice. Very violent, but incredible tone and atmosphere. Yeah. Um. Very dark, so very gritty. Uh, sure. Gritty? Yeah, so that'll be cool. There were a couple other things that I feel like happened that I can't remember because it was kind of just, these things are always kind of just meh. There was a Matrix Resurrections
1: Unreal Engine thing that I haven't actually looked at yet. I didn't even hear about that. I saw the Sonic, the Hedgehog trailer. Oh, there was a Sonic 2 trailer. I'm excited about that one. Yeah. The first one wasn't bad, <laughs> honestly. I it, didn't see it. It had Jim Carrey. Dr. Rebind. felt like old Jim Carrey again, nice. which was nice in that movie. And, and um, Ben Schwartzman was really funny. But Jim can still turn it on. And then that Star Wars trailer was interesting, the Eclipse. Oh, yes. That was gorgeous.
0: And Star Wars Eclipse for anyone who doesn't know, who's not familiar with gaming, is going to be made by Quantic Dream, who is a studio that makes... They're famous for, most recently, Detroit Become Human. Before that, Beyond Two Souls with Ellen Page, who is now Elliot Page. Elliot Page. And before that, Heavy Rain. So they're very rich... Again... (laughs) They're like the movie games, so he's more interested in telling a story than he is creating a video game, but he is able to do that now with Star Wars, him being Quantic Dream's main guy whose name eludes me, but they're cool games, and I'm really excited to see what they do with this world, and I think it's set in High Republic.
1: Yeah, High Republic. Yeah. Which is the new Star Wars canon adventure that they're creating new stories for right now. Mm -hmm. It's at the height of the Republic. I think it takes place three to 400 years in the past. Yoda's there. Yeah. Yoda's still there on the council, but it's in the height of the Republic, not the old Republic, but Mm -hmm. the height of the Republic. That'll be cool. I like the characters and what they're doing and the stories that they're telling with that. But, uh, what else happened? Cowboy Bebop got canceled.
0: Oh yeah. (laughs) Less than 28 days, which is usually how long Netflix will wait before they can a series. Like a month. They canceled this within like three weeks of its debut, which means I think the return rate on people, finishing the show after having started it was really bad
1: not even considering the people who just didn't start it at all Mm -hmm. but (laughs) i feel bad for the people involved but ultimately i think it's for the best if you want to hear more about that go back and listen to our cowboy bebop episodes yeah um (laughs) there's a huge rumor right now going around that the fantastic four has been have been cast who have been cast? It's just a rumor, but I'm gonna mention it. It's Glenn Howerton as Reed Richards. He's from Always Sunny in Philadelphia.
0: I think Sunny is now the longest running live action sitcom. Yeah.
1: Yeah, of all time. That's crazy. Uh, Kristen Bell as Susan Storm, an Invisible Woman and missed um, opportunity to cast d reynolds chase stokes from <laughs> chase. outer banks on netflix is a popular teen drama he's a pretty boy hot lips uh, I, I hope i hope he does well i'm
0: looking you... at him now he's cute
1: and then this is the biggest shock to me uh is seth rogan as ben Grimm, the thing and that apparently seth rogan was said to be adamantly requested by Kevin Feige himself. So a, I'm so curious to see if these rumors are true because not a lot of the, the comic book sites are reporting on this yet. Mm -hmm. And B I'm so curious to hear why Kevin Feige was so adamant about casting Seth Rogen, who in the character of Ben Grimm, he's like the heart of the fantastic four and like the heart and soul. And He's also a strong man. He's never been like a funny guy like Seth Rogen. So I have no idea what's going to happen. It's it's interesting casting all around, to be honest. Kristen Bell, I think, is great. I love her. I feel like we
0: could just bring Michael Chiklis back. He's probably <laughs> not doing anything. Seriously.
1: They could and, and stuff. And, and anyway, Fantastic Four is going to be directed by John Watts, who just directed the last three Spider-Man Homecoming movies.
0: Do you think he'll keep directing Spider-Man movies
1: too? No. Watts? No.
0: Is he said this is his last one. No,
1: but I, there's, it's impossible. What do you mean? Sony likes to crank out a Spider Man movie every two years, and Fantastic Four already has a date. And with Marvel wanting to crank out these movies every two to three years as well, there's, it's impossible for a director to work on two movies at once and pump it out, pump out a blockbuster every two years. Two years is already rushing a blockbuster film, like a Marvel film. Book. You should tell Disney that and Kathleen Kennedy. Oh, I have a lot to say to Kathleen. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Kathleen! <laughs>
0: Michael Giacchino, 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 Giacchino. He's set to score the new Thor. I know how you feel about him. And Florence Pugh, and Rami Malek, (laughs) Rami Malek, and and Benny Safdie are joining Chris Nolan's Oppenheimer. That movie's cast melts my proverbial motherboard, man. They got Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr. It's going to be a smoke show of a friggin' red carpet when that hits. Mamma Mia. Yep. It's a busy month, Stephen. I hope we, uh, we'll make it. Barely,
1: but surely. And Christmas is happening. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man's happening. Yes. Let's uh, talk about the movie we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Why are we here? The
0: movie we're talking about today is called
1: Come On, Come On. Come on, come on. Come on. Come on, come on. Come on. <laughs> come on.
0: Directed and written by Mike Mills.
1: Mike Mills. I don't know anything about him. I know a little bit about him. I need an education.
0: I first learned of Mike Mills... In 2010, I was in high school, and he made a picture called The Beginners with Ewan McGregor. McGregor McGregor. Who are
1: you talking about? Are you talking about Ewan McGregor? (laughs) For some reason, I had
0: a little bit of a stroke there. I was thinking about the wrestler. It's okay. Conor McGregor, but same name. Beginners was Ewan McGregor, Chris Plummer, Melanie Laurent, and he wrote and directed that one too. And you could see a lot of the same influence in his style and his... Themes and that movie uh, was and is one of my favorite movies of all time in this category of like what I would I said to Steven is like it's not a, a genre film it's just kind of a drama played very straight in real life. You called it
1: non genre film.
0: Yeah, well, in my head, I always try to separate. Genres. I mean, compartmentalize sort of my favorite things when it comes to film and television from genre into like what is like real world storytelling. So something like Dune is a genre film for me. It's you know science fiction, Lord of the Rings, this fantasy. But Mike Mills makes movies that are about uh, reality and mm. modern day real world problems, regular people and their little stories of you know what they're going through, and their little triumphs and just it's about being human, being right. a person. So kind
1: of like um, what's his face,
0: Noah Bombach, Bombach, who coincidentally Mike Mills I think borrowed the cinematographer from that film from to their shoot. Series? Come on, come on, yeah. Oh, cool. Robbie Ryan shot both of those movies, so you can feel the similarities. Mike Mills also did 20th Century Women, which I did not see, have not seen yet. In 2016, that had a net Bening. He also directed a uh, short film for The National for their 2019 album. Mm. I mean you, you liked a lot, right? Yeah, I, I love The National. They're one of my favorite bands. So Mike Mills apparently is pretty good friends with that band, or at least the Desner Brothers, who are like I said, part of the national. Mm -hmm. So they scored the film. Right. And that's some of your creative power behind this movie. A lot of talented people who are pretty in tune with storytelling. And
1: yeah, let's talk about the actors.
0: Yeah. This movie featured Joker himself, Joaquin Phoenix, whose sister Viv was played by Gabby Hoffman, who I was not familiar with before, but you know her from. I
1: recognize her immediately because it, and this is like a kind of a theme in the movie, but these child actors and children meeting the adults or the adult version of these children it's sort of a theme in the film we'll talk about it but she was like famously in so many movies when i was growing up she was in probably most famously *Field the dreams and she was also in sleepless in seattle mm. i think she might have been uncle buck or airplane or something like that yeah uncle buck uncle buck with john yeah. candy and she looked exactly the same but like a forty-year-old version of that. <laughs> I don't know how old she actually is. Yeah, she was born in eighty-two, I think. So yeah, she—that was so cool to see her. And then Scoot McNary yeah, played the bipolar father. In great little cameo. I love Scoot McNary. I love him too. He needs to be in everything. Be more famous. No, nah, he's—he's one of those actors. that's like so well-rounded and they're so good at their job. Mm-hmm. And
0: Gabby Hoffman's kid was played by
1: Woody Norman. Woody Norman, uh, kid's about to blow up probably.
0: Oh, I'm sure. He's been in a couple things, little things, but this is uh, probably his launching point. And his character, Jesse, is the driving point of the whole movie and his relationship with Johnny or Joaquin and the relationship with the mother. So
1: do you know, perchance, why this movie? I don't know if you did any research on this, but why it was shot in black and white? I don't know. Or why the, it might have not been shot in black and white, but why the final piece wasn't black and white?
0: Um, I'm not sure what Mike Mills intention was there. I mean, we could speculate, but I, I haven't read why.
1: Well, I don't think we've said it yet, but this was an A24 film. Yeah. A24 is the indie baby maker.
0: <laughs> this headline from movie maker says Mike Mills wanted it to feel like a fable. So he shot it in black and white. Mm. Mike Mills likes to joke that he's pretentious and that's why he loves black and white movies. But he said he just wanted it to feel like a myth. Mm. The story is very grounded. Very grounded. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, come on is a story of a man who is kind of broken, kind of lost, and disjointed, fallen away from a lot of relationships in his life. And he reconnects at a point with his sister. So this is Joaquin and Gabby Hoffman. They get back in touch after sort of being estranged for a bit. And he gets to come back to their life because she has to travel a little bit to help her husband, played by Scoot McNary, who is bipolar. And I guess they're separated or divorced. It's kind of unclear. Separated. He's in another city, so she has to go help him. And Joaquin comes in. Northern California. Joaquin pops in to look after her son, Jesse, for a little while. And then they ended up traveling across the country to different cities because of his work. He couldn't abandon his work, but also... What is his work? It's important. Yeah. Joaquin, we'll call him Johnny, I guess. Johnny, uh, he interviews... Exactly what he is is unclear, but the nature of his work is interviewing youth from around the nation and getting their stories and getting their perspective on what the future might hold specifically. And their, seems like he works for NPR or something. Yeah. He's pro- he probably produces. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, Gabby Hoffman's characters said that they heard him on the radio. So he does like a radio show and whatever project he's working on now, it's about young people and their relationship, um, with both the world, you know, what the future could look like and their parents, their social lives, stuff like that. And that sort of provides the backdrop for the movie. You keep cutting in and out of Johnny and Jesse's travels with these scenes of them interviewing kids. So those kind of drive all the themes of the movie home. Yeah. And by the end of the film, Johnny has, uh, you know, found his humanity again, kind of. It's that sort of story, you know, finding out he's learned just as much from Jesse as Jesse is learning about the world. Right. You know, and building up those relationships. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the classic story, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. They say there's only one or two stories, and that's
1: that's the story of people you know finding their humanity again, yep, yeah, so let's talk about it. I loved it <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> you just, did love I'll it. I'll drop a line. It's funny because in uh not the smash podcast that we just but with the one before, the power of the dog, you were talking about how Spencer is clear like easily in your top five, and then right after we saw this, you were like now this is in my top five you well, have yeah like so, <laughs> you have like ten things in your top I five. said
0: I said earlier in the year there I, like, a lot of my films, well, the, the year is back-loaded, we'll say that, yeah. with the film, because of COVID. Right. And I, I understood that every a lot of these films, they were going to sort of eke each other out for those top spots in my head. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I feel like Come On, Come On is an easy top five. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to fit everything in there that has come out with what has yet to come out. Sure. But top 10 is easier to say, yeah. so... This film for me is incredibly special, and as far as like I said, something that I don't consider to be genre film. Yeah, this might be my favorite film of the year. Because More than
1: Dune. Dune is genre. Oh, uh,
0: remember, I'm trying to like explain that because that's sort of how I
1: divide it. But all right, I see. My yeah, favorite, my favorite film that is. We all not, set up barriers in our minds that we have to navigate our yeah our reasoning somehow.
0: Well, it is it is so much unlike a lot of what we get today.
1: True. For me, this would be. I think I agree with you. It is very very good. I love. Movies like this that are life affirming, and it would be in my top 10. So, mm-hmm. the back half of the five, the back half five.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's probably where, depending on how uh, Macbeth and uh Guillermo's picture mm-hmm. go, this mm-hmm. could easily be like three or four. You don't think
1: me. licorice pizza will take any of that spot?
0: No, I think licorice pizza is going to be incredible, but it's been a while. Paul Thomas Anderson's it's been a while. <laughs> PTA's films, I think they're incredible and I love them like personally, but they don't like speak to the core of me like a lot of movies do. I just see them as like incredibly well-made films that are enjoyable. It's
1: interesting the movies that do speak to the core of you. Yeah. I always love it when a movie does because it gives me a little bit more insight into you and who you are. Spencer is a movie that did that. Yeah. And uh, Come On, Come On is a movie that did that. See, Power of the Dog was that way for me mainly because I think it's like a perfect movie mm-hmm. just from the technical standpoint. That's like where I'm coming from. Oftentimes when I'm watching something, I think I like things that are tragic oftentimes too. And <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I agree with you. But when the emotional aspect of a film is done so well that it, and it meets the technical aspect, mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, that's a perfect movie. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, that's and, kind of how I felt with this. Do you disagree?
0: I think, all the elements of filmmaking came together for me in Come On, Come On in such a there simple was like, way. Yeah.
1: W- um, I would not categorize this movie as simple.
0: Yeah. Well, not simple in terms of its design, but simple in terms of like this film was probably
1: made on a modest budget. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, the thing about Come On, Come On that like knocks it down like maybe one step from a movie like Power of the Dog is its complexity in theme themes, multiple themes. This is a very layered movie. Mm -hmm. There's multiple plots happening simultaneously. Mm. Ideas are being thrown at you constantly across even multiple timelines, oftentimes all at once, which adds to the depth of the movie and the impact and the feeling that you get when you're watching it. But it doesn't simplify its point of being. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It's more like an attitude or disposition about life itself. And that's great and wonderful and beautiful. But as a movie that usually sets out to do a thing and then accomplishes that thing and has a very, to the point, like statement, this was not that. This is more existential. Yeah. And I love existential movies. I really do. Some of my favorite films. But Mm -hmm. I think just in my mind, I, I adhere to movies that set out to do a thing, take you on a journey that is full of subversion and then accomplishes that thing in the end. Like I was saying, it resolves it. There's like a closure. There's some sort of, and then it has like some sort of like punch in the gut statement at the end, Mm -hmm. even if that's a, a negative feeling. But so this was like a soft ending that didn't really give you the punch in the gut. Correct. I see. But I did love it. Like I said, and it would be in my top 10 of the year for sure. Probably at number six or seven. Yeah. You know, it took the place of um, Nine Days for me in that same kind of category. Yeah. That had more of a, a fictional, spiritual aspect to it. But mm-hmm. That's a good example of something you said to me the other
0: day with like comparing it with something like Terrence Malick. And those are films that kind of reach for something. Whereas like when Mike Mills makes a movie, for me, it's something that it, if I feel like it knows itself extremely well. Mm-hmm. And a movie like Nine Days is is sometimes, I feel like it reaches for something inside of something like genre to try to give itself something else alluring about it that people can latch on to. Sure. And I always go for stuff like that, you know, hand over fist as well. Like those movies are fun, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Come on, come on with something that did feel like it didn't need any gimmick. It didn't need any extra stuff.
1: Yeah. I hope none of that came off. Like I was saying, this movie didn't have an identity because it definitely knew what it was doing. It had purpose. It had a massive identity, and it's just that its identity was that it was existential, yeah, and it had less of a uh, three-act structure narrative that had like a specific, like a one-liner punch to the gut point in the end, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to say there. Like, like I was saying, it's it's layered to me. Like the thing that really popped out the most was it focused on age, like as a concept and how essentially like young or old, we're all trying to make sense of our feelings, like our bodies, our decisions, our frustrations, interactions with others. From the point of, like I said, concepts, from the point of watching Joaquin's character try to interact with his sister and his memories about his mom. And in one point he physically faints and collapses. And he says to Jesse, to the kid, don't tell anyone. And he tries to cover it up. So there's that shame factor. And that's the thing is you have all aspects of humanity, hope all the way to the point of hopelessness. Despair. Despair, <laughs> yes. Yeah, is, is captured in this movie. It has a lot to say about parenting as well, and it totally like, gets it right. Like the constant questioning of how parenting is, like the fear, the joy. Um, Joaquin is essentially experiencing parenting for the first time, and he's constantly returning to his sister for advice about what to do. And so that constant questioning of what is right in parenting and how to act as sort of a mentor for the next generation is also an interesting question. And then that is like layered with him, like trying to repair his relationship with his sister for a bunch of different things that went down in their past over the, like maybe the last five previous years, 10 previous years. So there's the navigation of like relationship and the delicacy there like I said, it's multifaceted. Mm And then his job talking about the youth of today is super fascinating. You know, you're constantly cutting between montages of hearing from the youth of today and their idealizations about the future. And so that's intercut throughout the whole film as well. And that is almost an analogy or a metaphor. What I think is a metaphor for Joaquin's hopes about his own life. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Like, they talked about climate change at one point and how like adults kind of ignore that. And that's like emblematic, I think, of how he's not able to deal with change, also learning how to change, not really even understanding certain things, like why his relationship ended with the person that he's in love with. Or like even the idea that comes up in the interviews, like how kids are viewed by adults, like Joaquin is learning how to treat his nephew the whole time. You know, it's a metaphor for that same thing. He also, I think, still views himself as a kid. And that was also kind of talked about in how the the child actor thing, like I was saying. Like, Joaquin was a child actor. Gabby Hoffman was a child actor. Woody Norman is a child actor in the movie. And there's this constant play in relation between adult and child that is very fascinating to watch. Almost Mm -hmm. like, this is kind of the point, if I could extrapolate one point of the film, it would be that this movie is trying to link the separation, the gap between age ages and bind them back together by basically unifying humanity, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's trying to take that down a step and say, Hey, we're all just human. At the end of the day, we all still feel the same way. We're navigating earth the same way. Some of us know how to do it better than others, but oftentimes adults don't even know how to talk about their feelings. And that was also really funny because Joaquin Phoenix's character, doesn't know how to talk about his feelings in a way that Woody Norman's character does and knows how to navigate his feelings. And he's, you know, nine years old. So that was really fascinating as well. Yeah. That line of thinking is really embodied beautifully
0: by Viv, Gabby Hoffman's character, who is the mother of Jesse. And she's constantly, like you said, walking Johnny through this relationship and what, like Mm -hmm. what, what's the best way to be a parent and to be there uh, as a resource um, and as a friend, as much as you are a parent to your child mm-hmm. and I absolutely adored that character and what it brought to that dynamic uh, you know we yeah, <laughs> as someone who as a pe- I'm a pessimistic person, kind of misanthropic, and uh, I see a lot of problems as like the genesis of it is in the parenting often, you know, and yeah, parents who don't know how to connect with their kids and how to love their kids, and the character of viv was was so just not only refreshing, but just wonderful to watch. And the way she interacted with Jesse, who is potentially, you know, bipolar, like his dad, the way he deals with scenarios, it might have hinted at that. Hmm. Um, I did
1: think about that at one point, which made me sad.
0: Yeah, it's sad, but also it just shows how incredible Viv is at being a mom. And I was like, it's such a beautiful relationship he has, or she has rather, with her son. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, cuz for me the movie in a in a word I guess what I walked away with was like conflict that the human condition is one of conflict in the ways we deal with it. Right. There was even a scene in the middle of the movie where there the characters are sitting around a table discussing one interview they got from a kid and how mm-hmm. the perspective on human nature being violent or nonviolent and that was a nice little like a thesis statement for me. Mm-hmm. Like the way Johnny has dealt with his past conflicts and his retreat and isolation from many of the meaningful relations in in his life and how he's coming back to that. And meanwhile, you got like Jesse dealing with his parents, his father, his father's legacy, and his mom who is still involved with his life and how he's processing that. As a precocious child, like you said, he's already like aware of all these things of how complicated living is, people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, the idea of conflict and processing that and compartmentalizing it and dealing with it or not dealing with it was was my favorite part about the movie. Yeah, totally. I will say that uh, apart from some interesting techniques in editing or cinematography, I think the best part about this movie was just the authentic and very naturalistic like acting. I mm-hmm. felt like at no point did I, my immersion break with Joaquin, Gabby Hoffman, like I said, was amazing, and the kid. It was all so believable and immersive. I just want to say that was amazing. While we know Joaquin is a good actor.
1: It almost seemed <laughs> like... It was unscripted. Yes. Yeah. And I think I might have read somewhere that some of it was. Probably. I mean, I, I, just watching it, I was assuming that a lot of it was unscripted. Yeah. It seemed like Mike Mills maybe came up with some ideas and then said, hey, why don't you guys just play around with this and we'll try to capture the magic, you know? And capture it they did. I think this film should be required viewing.
0: There's something so inherently real and true and good for people. And that's... I don't really feel like that way ever. I feel like film is art, and art is something that is not only subjective, but something that you should never force somebody into. But with movies like Come On, Come On, there is such a purity of intention and a beauty. Mm-hmm. But also simultaneously, like I said, comparatively with something like Terrence Malick, there's no barrier to entry in terms of artfulness. Right. There is such, and this is what I mean when I simplicity, is that it's it's so accessible, I think, for every human being. Regardless of your investment in film as a medium, storytelling as a craft, Come On, Come On is beautifully pure in its its experience as cinema. That I think everybody should watch it and they will be better for having seen it. And the lessons that are there to learn, Mm -hmm. the experiences that I think everybody can relate to. No matter if you're from these cities that we visit in the film or you're you know, part of these professions that are shown. I think there is like there is something there that, that can be learned and should be learned, whether it's parenting, whether it's uh, interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. dealing with
1: inner conflict. I think every person can take something different from this movie too. Yeah. You could put it in front of an audience of 100, and almost 100 different people can take something different from the movie. I was just thinking, like, I'm going to see my grandparents in a couple weeks,
0: and... I would love to see this film with them, not only to get their perspective, but I think they would be Hmm. edified, and Hmm. it is just, I feel like something that everybody should see. I I mean, and I never really feel like that. There are are a lot of films where I'm like, it would be cool if people saw that and liked it, but this film, I'm like, everybody should watch this movie.
1: I definitely think, and I might be dreaming here, but I feel like it's good enough to be nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Because... It's not crazy like a lot of other A24 films doesn't have this massive feeling of existential dread, but it's very life affirming. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I feel like it checks all the boxes of a Best Picture nominee, but with none of the pretentiousness. Yes. Pretension?
1: Pretense? Pretense.
0: There's no pretense. It is just, it's there. And it's it's like, it is authentic from the writing to the performances, but it's never like, oh, this is Oscar bait. You know, it's just like this could quietly win because it deserves it. Yeah. Because
1: it... I do think anyone could see this movie adult or anywhere from like teenager, teenage and up, you know, because I I think it has something to say to everyone from that age and on.
0: Yeah. And the last thing I would say on that note is that it's uh, something... The first thing that came to me in the movie is something I've been thinking about a lot recently is the older I get and I guess the more cynical I become... With film and with corporatizing art. (laughs) Oh. And this is big ups. I mean, (laughs) not big ups. Big ups, man. (laughs) (laughs) This is, um, thank you to Mike Mills and I guess by extension A24, people that would create and then bankroll projects like this, is that this is a film, one of my favorite films, I mean, all my favorite films are films that are not what we would call story by committee, which is what a lot of big franchising has become. You know, sometimes you're watching a movie like I guess a good example would be like the modern Star Wars movie where it feels like a, a group of corporate heads got in a room, studio execs, what have you, and they said, here are the things we need in our movie. We need this, we need this, we need this. Mm-hmm. We need to take into consideration these things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But with movies like this and with a lot of A24 pictures, it feels like it's Mike Mills's dream. You know, it's The artist went in with other creative and like-minded individuals mm-hmm. and said, we're going to tell a story and we're going to make it real and pure and we're not going to worry about, um, (laughs) anything else really, except what we want to tell.
1: That is like the true, you know, definition of auteur.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And those are my favorite movies. And as much as I can enjoy a good schlocky campy Venom 2, if I'm blasted, uh, it doesn't, it's like, it's completely forgettable. And hopefully, come on, come on, will be one of those movies that sticks in my subconscious. I think it will be. Yeah. If the last 48 hours is any indication, it will be.
1: Yep. Yeah. Come on, come on. Uh, It's definitely a must-see film. We here put our stamp of approval on it. And we're going to end with a song from The Score. The Desner Brothers from The National.